Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Spectator Australia is a weekly delight for anyone who loves insightful analysis, contentious opinion, and hard-hitting comment. With the finest writing on current affairs, politics, the arts, books, and life, you will read regular columnists who delight, provoke, and amuse and editorial features of incredible breadth and depth. There is no party line to which its writers abound. Originality of thought and elegance of expression are the sole editorial constraints. A digital subscription is just $16.99 a month, and you get your first month free. Sign up today at spectator.com.au forward slash join. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia, a series of conversations on Australian politics and life. I'm Will Kingston. My guest today is Miranda Devine. Miranda is one of the most influential Australian journalists of my lifetime. She straddled the Fairfax News Corp divide in Australia, writing columns for, among others, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Daily Telegraph. These columns, more often than not, made their way to the forefront of the national conversation. She now resides in the US, where she writes for the New York Post. Miranda, welcome to Australiana. Thanks for having me, Will. It's great to talk to you. So I have a confession to make. I uh, I wasn't aware that your father was one of the pioneering Australian journalists until I did some research for this interview. He was the editor of, among other publications, The Australian, Chicago Sun-Times, and The New York Post, where, where you currently work. Did The Post have a sentimental lure for you, given that context? Yeah, it does, um, very much so. And, uh, I mean, he was um, editor back in the 80s, so I wasn't even a journalist, but he just always loved New York. I was born here. Um, He was actually from New Zealand. My mother was Australian, and he was a foreign correspondent for the Herald and Weekly Times um, at the time that I was born in New York, in Queens, and always had an allure for him. He he was a John O'Hara fan. He used to read American fiction when he was a boy in Blenheim in New Zealand and uh, and always loved New York. So when he went back later in life with the family to edit the New York Post, he loved it. He was there actually before that. He worked for many years uh, for the Reader's Digest, uh, about 10 years in Australia and then in, in America, in New York, actually a little bit in Westchester County, which is about an hour uh, north of um, Manhattan. America is a very different country to when, when he was there. Do you think America is an empire in decline? Well, yeah. I mean, it's sort of obvious in in every way. I mean, most visibly in the very ancient president who keeps falling over and has cognitive moments, let's call them, and just the general gerontocracy in charge in Washington. Congressmen and women in their 80s and 90s are not uncommon. And so it's that sort of, maybe it's that baby boomer generation that just refuses to move over. I think that certainly caused some sort of sclerotic problems. But I, I, I never count America out. I mean, it has in its the seeds of its foundation um, the ability to continually regenerate itself. And so I think that we'll see 
probably in 2024, that sort of regeneration, a new generation. Uh, and, you know, I, I think America has a lot of problems at the moment, but so has every country in the world. So having lived here and having visited Australia a couple of times post-pandemic, having been locked out of Australia for 18 months and not being able to see friends or family, I, I feel like everyone in the world went crazy with COVID except maybe Sweden and America was slightly less crazy than Australia. A couple of thoughts there that I want to pick up on. I read your article from a few days ago where you mentioned Joe Biden's latest stumble. How do you think these sorts of moments feed into the perception of America in the eyes of their enemies like China and Russia? I think it's a bigger deal overseas than it is here. Everyone's sort of inured to it and uh, you have such a protection racket around Joe Biden and, you know, for instance, after this this latest uh, very heavy fall on stage, he tripped over a sandbag but he couldn't get up. He had to be hoisted to his feet by a couple of Secret Service agents That really plays badly, I think, internationally. But the New York Times came straight out, I think, the next day or the day after with this 3,000-word article written by four reporters just basically saying how perky and sharp, sharp as a tack Joe Biden was and how amazing he was and he, he, you know, makes younger staff exhausted by his punishing schedule, which is just ridiculous because we see his schedule and we see him in action. But Americans are also very kind, kinder, I think, than Australians or Brits. They don't poke mock and poke fun at people who are struggling like Joe Biden is. I mean, in one sense, it's it's a sad spectacle, even though he's such a corrupt and nasty old man and doing so much damage to the country and the world. You know, it's hard not to feel some sympathy for an 80-year-old who is obviously in decline. But I do think that it plays bigger overseas. And sure, the weakness that America exhibited, not just image-wise, but when in the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think that certainly emboldened our adversaries. They're also Australia's adversaries and led to Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine, which uh, he never did when Donald Trump was in charge because I think everyone was overseas, just didn't quite know what to make of Donald Trump. Donald Trump sort of boasts about how he used to tell Putin, oh, you know, I'll I'll bomb those beautiful uh, domed buildings that you have in Moscow. And he said, Putin kind of didn't really believe me, but 10% he believed me. So that was enough for a deterrent. And I think whatever the reason, during Trump's sort of belligerent and equally belligerent and sort of charm offensive time, foreign affairs for America was a lot calmer. No wars were started. And uh, it's, it's much, much worse with Joe Biden and Antony Blinken and the sort of warmongery group now uniparty group because the Senate, the Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell, who's the top Republican in the Senate, he has said the most important thing for him is uh, Ukraine. And one of the most vocal um, senators, you know, other vocal senators anyway, feel the same way. Let's go to Ukraine because I think it is an interesting lens to look at the changing face of the American right. Many on the US many on the right in the US are now actively hostile to engagement in Ukraine. This is despite that same group being cheerleaders for 20 years of conflict in the Middle East. I would personally argue there is a less of a moral imperative and possibly less of a strategic imperative in those Middle Eastern conflicts than there is now. How do you describe that 
change on the right of American politics? I don't think it's as clear cut or as simple as you just laid out. I don't think that it's the same people who barracked for Iraq as are now not barracking for Ukraine. There is some overlap, but what you're seeing is there is really now, I mean, back then there was a sort of an anti-war group. Uh, Now there's almost unanimous consent in Congress to go and continue to spend trillions of dollars without any real auditing of that money. And and no, no kind of boundaries on how far this conflict will go and a conflict that began, you know, with a moral imperative to stop Putin from invading another country it has now seems to have morphed into a desire for regime change in Moscow, which nobody signed up for and nobody wants. So you're seeing a, a, a much more nuanced um, criticism from the right of this blank check that you know, some, I mean, Biden isn't even the, the, the most strident of them. He's had to be pulled into, you know, escalating America's military assistance. But in a way, I wonder if that's not just some strategic negotiation on his part with uh, the Republicans in the Senate, because the Republicans have control of the House, but not the Senate. And Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, his sidekick, have both, uh, are both emotionally entwined with Ukraine, and and many Republicans are, as Democrats are, because they're financially entwined with the weapons industry. And mm. so, uh, you know, for instance, in the latest negotiation over the debt ceiling, <laughs> the one thing that was, uh, well, Social Security welfare was kept quarantined from any possible cuts, but so was defence. And, you know, that means two-thirds of the budget is uh, just not able to be touched. And that's a bipartisan decision. So I I think there are some on the right, but equally on the left, people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's now running for the Democratic nomination for president. He's he's got 19% in a polls straight out of the gate. So it shows there's a lot of dissatisfaction on the Democrat side with Joe Biden. Um, But he's very anti the war. And and there are many on the left, like Glenn Greenwald, who are anti the Iraq war, like RFK Jr., and are now anti-Ukraine war. And there are some on the right who flipped, and now they're joining their comrades on the left. It's a very interesting and complicated situation. Mm. We'll play this out Further, uh, I've spoken to a couple of people in the last month, uh, Senator Alex Antic, Major General Mick Ryan. Both of them in Australia think that an armed conflict between China and the US in the next decade is increasingly likely. If that possibility comes to pass, how do you think the US will respond? Look, I don't really know, but I must say it's uh, crossed my mind that the conflict in Ukraine, uh, America's um involvement in that, basically in a proxy war with Russia, is deeply unpopular in America, and particularly among that cohort of Americans that provide the cannon fodder for the military. And so there is an increasing isolationist feeling in the country, um, and you get that with the populist nationalist movement on the right, uh, but also on the left. And so I think that if America is continues to be weak, ties itself out with Ukraine and Europe, that there'll be less appetite, um, less ability to uh, get involved in Taiwan, which is probably the most likely first flashpoint. And 
this is sort of an intangible emotional thing, but there was always a feeling among just kind of grassroots Americans that they really loved Australians and they felt that Australia was like America used to be, it's sort of like Texas, and that Australians are really tough and um, stood up for themselves. And I think that the the whole, you know, performance during COVID, just there were so many videos coming out of Australia and I know it's not really a fair representation because most of them were coming from Victoria during their very harsh lockdowns. But still, the, the image has been shattered of Australia as this, you know, tough, resilient, um, stand-up-for-itself, independent-minded nation. And uh, a lot of Americans have turned off Australia. They say it's just been captured by the WEF, it's lefty, it's succumbed to the Great Reset, all of that stuff, which I think hurts Australia. And just in terms of just an emotional reaction to uh, Australia needing America's help, I just... You know, whatever the the administration does, I think there's less appetite for it out out in, you know, certainly in um, Republican America. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And we'll get back to the specific relationship between the US and Australia first. Uh, There's a lovely line that you penned for The Spectator Australia in 2014. You said that the quiet truth of politics is that it all comes down to the character and calibre of those running the show. Now, I'm interested in this. Many people in the US would agree with that, and they would also be very fervent Trump supporters. Now, Trump, for all his undoubted strengths, his character can be called into question. How do you explain that apparent paradox or tension on the right of American politics? Well, I think that people were so fed up with the powerlessness, with the corruption in Washington, um, with the arrogance the dismissal of their concerns, the hollowing out of the middle class, the complete sellout to China, and that they were desperate. And all they were getting in terms of candidates were people like Mitt Romney, who were just part of that kind of uniparty elite. And so they went for a giant middle finger to the establishment, which was Donald Trump. And that's what he was. He was a big wrecking ball and he was a great threat to the status quo. And you know, I mean, he was his own worst enemies in a lot of ways. But in a lot of ways, the sort of break from orthodoxy that was his administration uh, did great things for the country. And he was obviously such a threat to what he calls the deep state, but it's that permanent bureaucracy in Washington, D.C., that they broke every rule to try and cripple his administration. And the FBI particularly behaved corruptly and dishonestly and dangerously and really intervened in two elections, 2016 and 2020. So there is a lot of uh, anger and, you know, bitterness in the electorate about what happened to Donald Trump. And, you know, he has a big evangelical following, or had certainly, and, and, and you know, they, they were willing to overlook his personal foibles and his kind of unseemly behaviour because they felt, some of them that I've talked to, they felt he was kind of sent from God. But even if those that didn't think that, they felt that he was the the barbarian that was needed, their barbarian, to go in and smash things up in Washington and expose, you know, look under the rocks and expose the cockroaches. But I don't know if you can do that twice. I think he was that was a one-off. And certainly the candidates that have come after him are emulating his um, policies and his kind of pugnaciousness. 
And so, and chief among them, of course, being Ron DeSantis, the 44-year-old governor from Florida. And so it'll be a, it'll be a fascinating campaign season. And I don't think it's at all a laid out misere that Donald Trump is going to win. Mm, let's let's go on to DeSantis because the the cult of personality around Donald Trump has put DeSantis in a difficult position. It's put many in the conservative media in a difficult position. So I've noticed people like Dave Rubin, people like Ben Shapiro, who are openly pro DeSantis, are trying to have to tread this line where they're saying we think this guy is the guy, but at the same time, a large part of their listenership are ultra maga fanatics who generally don't take kindly to anyone saying a bad word about Donald Trump. Are you conscious of this phenomenon? Look, I I think that's a slight exaggeration. You might get that impression if you look at Twitter, um, but that's not representative of the real world. And I just know from uh, just early forays into New Hampshire where I went to see Vivek Ramaswamy um, do a little sort of pre-campaign tour that People there, um, Republican voters who love Trump and voted for him in 2016 and 2020, they're open to looking for someone else. And it's not that they're disappointed with Trump, but they are conscious that he's old. You know, he's 76. He's four years younger than Joe Biden. And he's older than Joe Biden was when he began the presidency as the oldest president ever. So while Donald Trump is very, he really is sharp and he's he's much uh, younger cognitively and, and seemingly physically, although he doesn't look after himself, than Joe Biden. He's still old and wouldn't be able to serve a second term. And so, and they, they kind of like what they see in Ron DeSantis and even Vivek Ramaswamy and others in the field. And they're just open to, sh- they're, they're on a shopping tour. They've got Trump in the back pocket, but they're going to see if Ron DeSantis, say, blows their socks off. And, you know, he's he's got a lot of time to work that out. He's not Donald Trump. He's a completely different persona. But what he is is a, a very serious person and very disciplined. Um, he's not charming. He's not a showman. He's not charismatic. But you know, the times are very different now to what they were in 2016 and and in 2020 even. You know, the economy is really suffering. The border has been invaded by six to eight million illegal migrants. Um, Cities around the country are falling apart. Crime is rampant. Joe Biden's been an unmitigated disaster, um, you know, according to the majority of voters. And, And there are so many problems that People might start looking at Ron DeSantis as a sort of a discipline. They might not like him, but he'll get the job done. Let's say you are Ron DeSantis' campaign manager. How do you beat Donald Trump? I think just do what he's doing. I don't think he, I think he needs to answer the criticisms and just show his wares, you know, show, show his plans, show what he's done in Florida uh, and point out the Achilles heels that, um, Donald Trump has because, of course, because Donald Trump served for four years as president and everyone knows how his policies turned out. And look, COVID, I think Donald Trump's very vulnerable because while he's tried to flip the tables and say that DeSantis was a lockdown merchant, in fact, DeSantis was uh, almost alone in the country as a governor who kept his state open, 
uh, followed the science, protected the elderly and allowed, you know, young and healthy people to continue to keep the economy ticking over. And uh, the, the proof of the pudding is in the fact that so many New Yorkers have moved there. So many people from from all sorts of democratic states have moved to Florida and Florida's, uh, you know, taxes are low and its GDP is high, its economy is booming. He just he just won re-election in a huge landslide. So he has a fantastic record to stand on. And if he can catch the imagination of people that they can hope that he can fix the great problems that are here. You know, Donald Trump wasn't able to fix a lot of the problems. And so uh, maybe maybe the voters will sort of go with their, their head rather than their heart because, you know, you know, Donald Trump does have their heart. Last year, you released now what is now a best-selling book, Laptop from Hell, which your publishers quite quite cleverly described as a 210-page story of the Biden family as recorded on Hunter Biden's laptop. Now, some people said something along the lines of, Joe Biden has a rat bag kid, so what, more right-wing distractions. Why should people care about this story? Well, it's not about Hunter Biden. It's about Joe Biden and it's about the influence peddling racket that his family conducted overseas while he was vice president with his knowledge, with his involvement. And they got tens of millions of dollars from some of America's biggest adversaries, uh, chiefly China, Russia, Ukraine, then Kazakhstan, Romania, you name it. And Hunter Biden was really the bag man for the family. And there is ample evidence that Joe Biden lied when he told the American people during the campaign that he knew nothing about his son Hunter's overseas business dealings and that he, that Hunter and, and Joe's brother, uh, Jim Biden, Hunter's uncle, didn't receive any money from China. But look, the book is not just the laptop. The laptop is a sort of incomplete, imperfect record of nine years of the Biden vice presidency and Hunter Biden's life as a crack addict. But, you know, I also augmented, it was like a jigsaw puzzle, uh, what was on the laptop with the material from Tony Bobolinsky, who was a former business partner of Hunter Biden, who's turned against him. I um, obtained, you know, the contents of three of his uh, devices. And a lot of that material overlapped with what was in the laptop. And uh, then also, there was a fantastic uh, investigation that was done by Republicans in the Senate by two senators, Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, uh, back in September of 2020, before we got the laptop. And that used a whole lot of suspicious activity reports that the Treasury Department collects from banks, which are required to file them whenever there's something that looks to them to be suspicious, like a money potential money laundering or, you know, money that comes in from a sanctioned person or a sanctioned country or a crim- criminal proceedings. Um, it could There could be nothing, but there were dozens, I think, 180 or something suspicious activity reports generated by Biden family uh, payments from China and these other countries. And so um, from those suspicious activity reports, the uh, Johnson-Grasley investigation managed to piece together some of uh, the beginning of a money trail um, that is, uh, you know, married up with a lot of the invoices and other bank documents that were on the laptop. And, um, and since then, we've now got, since the Republicans have taken back the House, um, we have the House Oversight Committee has uh, been able to 
delve even deeper into those suspicious activity reports and they've uh, subpoenaed bank records and have traced money now um, that's come. Well, they've done the first tranche was $10 million from a Chinese energy company um, that was uh, paid to a Biden family factotum uh, in Arkansas and he then parceled out that money in dribs and drabs over several months to, well, James Comer, the Oversight Committee chairman, says up to a dozen different uh, immediate family members of Joe Biden, that being Hunter, um, his brother Jim Biden, Hallie Biden, who was Hunter's sister-in-law, the widow of his late brother, various grandchildren, nieces. It's it's a very suspicious money trail and... um, the all roads kind of lead back to Joe Biden. We've got whistleblowers now that have come forward that the Oversight Committee has been talking to, and they they are implicating Joe Biden in a massive bribery uh, scandal. The latest one is talking about a $5 million bribe, bribery scheme involving Joe Biden and Ukraine. So, I mean, all of these allegations, but I guess the Oversight Committee is operating on the theory that where there's smoke, there's fire. And uh, the, the pushback from uh, these teams of lawyers that the, the supposedly broke Hunter Biden has defending him and the Biden family, the ferocity of it tells you that there's there's something there to be protected. Mm, well, it, it, you know, it's a shocking story. But at the same time, you were one of the very few people in the media who pursued it to your great credit. What do you think that says about the state of journalism in the West today? Well, it's quite disturbing, the the whole saga of the laptop. I mean, it was actually an Australian, my editor, Cole Allen, um, who at that point was editor-in-chief of the New York Post or the, the top editor at the New York Post. Um, he had some sort of a different title. but And he, he had brought me over here having been, I think since 2001, he'd been editing here. He had been editing the Daily Telegraph um, in Sydney. And uh, so he he really was the one who had the courage and the vision to give the green light to, to the story when I brought it to him. And, you know, I, I think Rudy Giuliani and his lawyer, Bob Costello, brought it to me as a kind of a last-ditch effort because they had not been able to get other media outlets to to run it um, or they were just being too slow. And it took Cole Allen's sort of, I don't know, he's from Dubbo, you know, his sort of Dubbo can-do-it attitude that just made the, the newsroom go into all systems go and, um, and we got the story up. And then immediately on October 14, 2020, um, that the story went up online at 5am, Facebook and Twitter moved to censor it. And that then set us down the path of the cover-up story, which has turned out to be bigger even than the original story of corruption in Washington, which is kind of as old as time. And uh, even though Joe Biden's one of the past masters of uh, influence peddling, the corruption story involves the FBI, the CIA, the D- Department of Justice. It's, it's a frightening display of just uncontro- untrammeled power um, and the collusion with big tech, again, incredibly powerful and unaccountable oligopoly, a global, not even accountable in America to anyone, that just decided that they were going to censor the country's 
oldest newspaper, fourth largest by circulation. The story was completely true, completely accurate, completely checked out and carefully presented. And, you know, the FBI had gone into Twitter and Facebook in the months and weeks before the election and basically sort of pre-bunked our story because they knew it was coming because they'd been um, spying on Rudy Giuliani's cloud and would have had access to the emails that came from the laptop repair shop guy uh, who had, who where Hunter had abandoned his laptop and probably would have had access to my messages with Rudy that would have alert, alerted them to the fact that the post was imminently going to publish. So, you know, that, 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 that's quite a frightening situation and there are all sorts of other whistleblower allegations and other evidence to show that the FBI had derogatory information about the Bidens, about Joe Biden, which they buried, they sat on, they dismissed as Russian disinformation. And then the, the second part of this is the CIA. Just three days, maybe four days after our story came out, the 51 former intelligence officials, most of them being from the CIA, including five former directors or acting directors, they uh, they wrote this completely dishonest letter suggesting that this laptop and our stories were Russian disinformation. And Joe Biden used that a couple of days later in the last debate against Donald Trump to just dismiss any any debate about um, the laptop and the millions of dollars that had come into uh, Biden family coffers. And the, the our first day story was a Ukrainian businessman, an associate of Hunter Biden, his benefactor, who was paying him $83,000 a month to sit on uh, the board of this energy company. He was thanking Hunter in an email for introducing him to his father in Washington, D.C., when Joe Biden was vice president. And Joe Biden's campaign just denied that that meeting ever happened. After Joe Biden was elected, uh, we found uh, more evidence that that it did. And it was, in fact, a dinner. And it wasn't just Ukrainians. It was Russians and Kazakhstanis at the dinner. And the White House had to admit that, yes, Joe Biden was there. But at the time, the rest of the media just bought this, this lie that it was Russian disinformation. It was comfortable for them to buy the lie because it was so close to the election and I guess it was a difficult story and and they all wanted Trump gone this is the thread you know it was it was most of the media it was certainly New York Times Washington Post the sort of prestige media and uh, and the FBI and the CIA and what Donald Trump called this the deep state they really had in their head that Donald Trump was an existential threat and that they were doing their patriotic duty by taking him out by fair, fair means or foul. I know you've got to get to a, uh, a dinner on the other side of Manhattan, which is easier said than done. Uh, so I have one final question for you, Miranda. Journalism is obviously your passion. It's your life's work. It was your father's passion and his life's work. What advice would you give to a young journalist in 2023? <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> um, look, no, there are some absolutely fantastic young journalists. I think, you know, be independent, don't be captured, remain cynical, don't be sucked in by your sources and uh, just have fun. I mean, it's the best job in the world and don't also think that you're some somehow going to save the world. Don't be an activist. You're there to just uncover facts, tell the truth, illuminate the world for your audience. It 
It's interesting. When, by the time this comes out, a conversation with Johannes Leek that I had the other day will also be out, and the two things he said were be cynical and don't become an activist. So great Oh, minds. interesting. Yes. Yeah, good <laughs> uh, on him. I love Johannes. Yeah. Fantastic. Laptop from Hell, available from all good bookstores. I've always wanted to say that. Uh, it's <laughs> an incredibly important contribution to the US political conversation, Miranda. You can also sign up for Miranda's newsletter, neatly titled Divine Online. The link is in the show notes. Miranda Devine, thank you for coming on Australiana. Thanks so much, Will. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.